Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast we have audio from our Easter service featuring special guest, author, and speaker, Jonathan Martin. We were really excited to have him in Easter this morning. And we're also going to be having him back on Tuesday evening for a live recording of his podcast, Son of a Preacher Man. So uh, come out and join us at 7 o'clock Tuesday night for that. That'll be a good thing as well. So we've also got Bag Hunger coming up this Saturday, so you can meet us up at the church for 9 o'clock. And we're going to distribute 2,000 bags around the area to collect food for the North Shore uh, Food Bank. So without further ado, let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church. Happy Easter. Right, so good morning, happy Easter. I want to start off saying some things. Uh, Crispin, thank you. Um, y'all are going to think I'm blowing sunshine in your ear. I don't care if it sounds insincere. And if we put this message out there, this part is going to hurt the feelings of other people who might listen. And I and I don't care because this is honest. I am grateful for any opportunity I get to speak anywhere, anytime. I never take it for granted. I'm humbled, grateful always. But I'm telling you the absolute truth. Of any speaking date I've done anywhere, I have never been as excited to preach anywhere as I am to be in just outside New Orleans on Easter. Like, and having the worship we just experienced, good grief. This is not the preacher PR thing. If I'm doing that and I'm guest speaking, I say, well, thank you to the musicians. We really appreciate their service. (laughs) Nobody knows the difference. What I can't say just anywhere, that's that's ridiculous. Like, I I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I would drive here for that. That That's nuts. I mean, I'm a U2 fan. It's kind of embarrassing. I've been to 23 U2 shows, which is probably a sin. The last one was in New Orleans. I came uh, this past fall. And so, like, doing When Love Came, when Love Came to Town, that song U2 did with B.B. King on Easter Sunday, that's ridiculous. I was sitting over here, and I'm thinking, I'm about to, like, spontaneously explode. I'm going to, like, burst into flames. I can't even take this. I wasn't playing on my phone. I don't tend to do that during church, but I, I was just, I had to like, put this out to all my followers. I had to, like, put that up live because it's like, there's a church that, like, that gets it somewhere. I'm, um, I'm sorry if I'm too playful. I'm in, I'm in a really good mood. I'm gonna, just going to keep riding this wave because this is true. So, like, other riffs I just can't do anywhere. Like, because here, here's my thing. I love hymns, and I love, like, I can get into high church or, like, whatever, but, you know, I do love rock and roll, and I think, you know, psalms, hymns, and spirituals, there's a place for all of it. Here's the real truth. Church is generally doing various forms of contemporary music with a band. Like, you can appreciate it, but it sucks more than it doesn't <laughs> because it's like sort of a generic riff on, like, oh, pop music from, like, 1999, and we're sort of just now, like, catching up to it. But then, like, here, like, I mean, y'all have... Y'all have musicians. I mean, like, like actual musicians. And, like, and there's, like, real soul. Not, like, a simulation of soul. 
Like, that's actual soul. I mean, like, Crispin's singing, I'm thinking, like, you know, you just know when somebody's been through some actual things and lived some things and lived like, like oh, that, that's soul. That's what that sounds like. So when churches are trying to do, like, any popular, this is going to be my new point of reference. Like, that, this, this is what you're trying to do. This is what you're trying to do that you can't quite put off. Maybe it is just what's in the air here, the geography. Like, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be here. And I, I do, I really feel like what you have not just saying this either. It's just special. This is a special place. The vibe here is awesome. I already feel like I'm uh, among friends. The Larson family is dear to me. My friend Brandon and uh, Faith. I've heard a lot about Faith uh, th- through the, my friend Danielle. Uh, but yeah, Crispin, again, thank you. And just yielding your pulpit on Easter Sunday is no small thing. So thank you for that. It's a, it's a gift. Let me pray. And Hopefully, I'll get somewhere remotely near a scripture or something like that. Clearly, I'm just, I I am truly excited. Well, Lord, we spend so much of our lives in waiting, so much of our lives. It's the cycle of created things. A lot of stuff dies. Things are dying in our lives all the time. Relationships die, and faith systems die, and things that we held on to, that we cherish slip from our fingers, and it just feels like most of our lives is in that kind of in-between space. Most of our lives are in the wilderness space. So, God, I'm just especially grateful that this day is all about resurrection, that this day, that things that have been dying and passing away are now coming back to life, things are being reinvented Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. You're created life now where there is not life before. And I pray that specifically for your sons and daughters here. That for people who've been in a long, dark place where there's been death and decay and lifelessness. I pray even this morning. In the same way after the resurrection, Jesus, you breathed on your disciples. Breathe on us. Breathe into us. Speak into us. Allow your word to come to life inside of us. And I just pray specifically, uh, not even trying to be too charismatic about it, but in the, there is something about your word that really does. It just it causes dry bones to come to life. It causes, where, where there has been death, there's just something about your word that's able to just speak us into life. So, God, I pray for the grace this morning to speak over dry bones. <laughs> There's nothing so dead that you can't resurrect it. There's none of us so dead that you can't resurrect us. We trust that, and we say, welcome, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. I'm going to get some, to some scripture in a bit, but, man, I'm excited to be here. By the way, I, I turned 40 yesterday. I'm going to go and just, I'll just say that. I've turned 40. This is also the beginning of a new era, whole new era, whole new. I'm just, and I am hitting my prime just now, y'all. I'm telling you, I was like, I'm all right with it. I'm all right being 40. I've been weathered. (laughs) I don't have any point in my life I want to go back to other than, you know, and a lot of that journey, and I don't tell this, you know, I mean, I wrote a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck, Crispin mentioned was my last book, and so a lot of this is, is in there, but it's not my habit these days, frankly, to tell too much of that story because that journey's been long and painful and there was a time to talk. You know, I just feel like in some ways there are other things that God is, is doing now. But, you know, I could not just start talking about something else being here 
and not say a little bit about that journey and what it's meant and what it means for me to be here now. So the first time I ever came to New Orleans, I was 12 years old. And this is funny to me now. The Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, is the denomination I come from. Wonderful folks. My dad's a preacher. Grandfather was a preacher, all that. Deep roots and tradition. Kind of a holiness Pentecostal expression. So uh, they had the denominational general assembly in New Orleans in 1992. And I think I was about, I was 14. I'd be 14 then. And I'm telling you, it was like, it was like I discovered another planet. I had never seen or experienced anything like New Orleans before. And I, I was terrified by it. I was horrified. Holiness Pentecostal boy from the South. I was horrified, but also so fascinated. This is amazing. I hope you won't think I'm being crass here, but like my lingering image of that, of that time was how funny it was to see all these Church of God people, men in suits and ties, women in their dresses, and like just full on, like just, just very, very like churchy folk. Walking down Bourbon Street, <laughs> this is the early 90s, so probably a little, you know, things not quite as cleaned up in terms of open whatever. And I have this vivid image of all these holiness folk walking down Bourbon Street. And there was this stretch where at the time there was a stand on each side of the street that were selling ties in the shape of penises. That's, that's the image I have. Intuitive, intuitively, by the way, it still seems to me that should be peni, but I'm not sure if that's right. They're walking down this, they're walking down this street, and I just remember having this jarring. It's like, all the Church of God holiness people in a place like this? And as I saw the bars and the various whatever, like, because I was so sheltered and scared to death of going to hell and rapture and judgment and everything else, like, I, I was walking, I walked down Bourbon Street like this. Like, I was kind of like, don't look to the right, don't look to the left, like, like, like don't, just don't think about it. I don't want to just like this. And that was the last time I was in New Orleans until I came back at the worst point of my life, absolute lowest point of my life. I had met some good friends. I'm staying with them while I'm here, uh, Tim and Barbara Gilbert, who had invited me to come and be at their place. I was, I had stepped down from the church that I founded and pastored for nine years. I was walking through a divorce process that was extremely painful, and I felt like very much my fault. Been married for 16 years, did not have children. Um, everything I ever knew and loved was in Charlotte. I'm an only child, and my parents were there and all that, and I just kind of, I felt like I was completely unraveling. And I really um, say this in all honesty, like I, I really didn't know if I was going to survive that season of my life. Like I really didn't. It was like I was so displaced and so disoriented. And, you know, I think because I was always such a conscientious, like whatever, I mean, I never even had like a, I didn't have a prodigal season of my life. You know, I didn't, I probably tasted alcohol for the first time in my, in my mid-20s or something. Like I was just, I was too scared to sin. So it was so like, so the idea of like being where I was, like I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't metabolize it. I, I just, I completely freaked out and would not have come if not for the kindness of these folks I'd got to know who really kind of pushed me on it. And finally, like, I, just desperation. I was so miserable. Like, I need to try something and be somewhere. And I'm telling you, like, coming here for that season, I spent about a month here. 
Um, and I, I fell in love with New Orleans in a way that, like, I don't love any other city on earth. Because now, I'm, I came back to the city beneath the sea when my own life was on the underside. You hear the music differently. You see the sights differently. You smell the smells differently. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because if there's anything that this part of the country has, it is soul. And you actually don't really have soul. Oh, you have it. You don't, you don't really excavate it like it does it, uh, like you do. the soul doesn't really come out of you until you suffer. Is that fair? Like that's how your soul gets formed is through suffering, through pain, through loss, through mistakes. How it happens. I hadn't had any of that. So it's like now all of a sudden it's like, oh, <laughs> this city that I was so terrified of when I was 14 years old was like, oh, man, this, there's no place in the world I'd rather be than here. I remember having this, I wrote about this a bit in the book, and I'm not trying to plug that. It's just like this, this part, even though it's there, it's just not something I talk about a lot now, but I feel like it's important to share here. I, I had the distinct memory. They kind of live in Uptown. And so I would kind of walk part of the way, take the trolley and whatever. But once I would kind of, every morning I would go into the quarter, and I would walk through the streets. And you know that kind of like, you know the sort of like morning after smell of the quarter. And I'm kind of, and I'm walking through it. And once again, instead of like, you know, 14, that put me off. It, like at this point, I'm like, it was, I mean, it was perfect for me. I, it, but there was something, I would walk through it. I'm trying to be pious here, but I would walk through the streets. And I would go into the cathedral there in the middle of the square every morning and do like morning prayer. And it was like the very landscape of that space was rewiring me. This notion of, God right here in the thick of everything. God right in the middle. God right in the middle of the messy things. It's a very spiritual place. Voodoo and Catholicism, two sides of the same coin. Pe people here are intuitively spiritual, even if they don't know quite which direction they want to go. Like, it's a spiritual place. And I, it was like there was something about being in the middle of that cathedral, in the middle of that of this particular place that just gave me the grace to start to welcome God in the middle of my mess, gave me the grace to be human in that and to, and to em, em, embrace it. So I would go from there, I would pray, and then I would perch up in a bar and write all afternoon. Hilarious to be the Pentecostal preacher now in New Orleans writing in a bar, thinking... <laughs> This is the bottom of the slippery slope. This is everything my parents ever warned about, right? <laughs> Except not really. True stories, I was being mended. Like, my soul was coming back to life. And I encountered God very powerfully. But I will say this. Even though it was a wonderful experience in many ways, I did kind of feel like in a lot of ways I came here to die, you know? It was like a lot of the last tentacles of the life I'd lived before and everything that mattered to me about it. It's like, like those things were, you know, were really, really were dying. And that's why, of course, I've been back since because now, you know, like I make up reasons to come here because I think it's so wonderful. But it's especially amazing for me one day after turning 40 to be in my favorite part of the country celebrating Easter. Because I can say from my, like, bones, I have experienced so much resurrection. I believe that Jesus is resurrected stronger than I ever have before. Never been, never been more of a believer in any of that than I am right now. So weird how that works, because I think especially when my life unraveled, 
I was scared. I was a professional Christian. I fell into a full-time ministry job when I was 22 years old. When I left ministry in that season, my thought was, who knows whether or not I even believe in Jesus? Like, if I, if I didn't have a, not a large, but I didn't have a paycheck, if, that, if, if I didn't have that, would I still even believe any of that stuff? And what was so crazy about it is that walking through that season, instead of walking away from Jesus, which, you know, there's grace if you need to go on whatever kind of journey. That's not the point. But God became more real to me than he ever had been before. And here's the part that, that still feels scandalous for me to talk about. I had more powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit on the other side of that crisis than I ever did before. <laughs> now, that just seems weird because my understanding and expectation was so long as I'm minding my manners and keeping the rules, God shows up. And instead, when I was flat on my back and utterly incapable of helping myself in any way, God became more real than God had ever been in all of my life. Imagine that. See, people have a little bit of journey before coming to faith, understand something of this. I, I didn't get that. So much of that was in my head, so much was in my head before. And it was like through that death process and resurrection process, things were coming to life in my soul. Thank you for indulging me. It's like, oh, it's story. Two. Here's the nice man who came and told us stories and said something mildly dirty when he was talking about Bourbon Street. Um, I do want to go to a text, though, and I won't take too much time here because uh, the point here is, Simple and very connected with everything that I've shared thus far. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. I love this text so much. Have I prayed yet? Have I done any praying so far? I did pray. That's good. Good. Thank you. That's good. Just want to make sure I prayed. Otherwise, it may not be anointed. John, if I, don't, if I don't pray, see, that's holiness tendency still coming out. If I didn't pray at the beginning of the message, then God might withdraw his spirit. John 20, beginning verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Comical footnote, this is really not that pertinent for the message today, but I do feel like I should at least drive by this. Part of what's so funny is that what you have John here repeatedly doing is referring to himself in the third person. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And also, uh, I outran Peter. That's... Uh, that. It's, it, that's, that's what you have going on here. Little disciple rivalry uh, wrapped in piety. Verse 5, he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, <laughs> in case you forgot, I got there first. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then disciples returned to their homes. Now, I read that because I love that part of the text, and I feel like the preface does matter. But I really want to point your attention to verse 11 through 18 here is where I, I, what I really feel like is the word for the moment. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. 
They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they had laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Then Jesus said to her, in that way that only Jesus can, he speaks her name. Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told him, she told them rather, that he had said these things to her. And Mary becomes the first evangelist, this woman evangelist of the risen Jesus. She's the one who gets to come back and tell the other disciples this good news. This morning, I really just, I know I've told you a lot of my story already, but there's really just two things I want to hone in on here. First, this fact that Mary is standing outside the tomb. Her faith has been devastated in ways that some of you know what it's like for your faith to be devastated. The dream was completely dead. Mary Magdalene, who deeply loved Jesus. Well, I've never bought the idea that there was, like, which was, has been, you know, kind of bantered around in pop culture a time or two. I never bought the idea that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had some kind of a romantic relationship. What I do believe is in the text, if you're paying attention, they certainly had a special relationship. She had a deep love for Jesus. Jesus had a deep love for her. There was, he was her whole world. And it's interesting to me now that Mary, who feels this grief so profoundly, Mary, who's the one who's experienced such deep brokenheartedness, of course, she's the first one that Jesus appears to. She's the one who'd suffered the most. She's the one who was grieving the most deeply. I really believe this not to be cute or cliche or whatever. The deeper you enter into the grief, the deeper you go into the sorrow, the greater the proximity is to resurrection hope. The deeper and darker that you go in, the more bitter the tears, the, the, the more in proximity you are to resurrection. I didn't, this is not in any kind of notes, because I don't have notes, but this, this I, I don't think I've ever, that's ever hit me quite like this before this moment. Jesus appears to those who need him the most. The resurrected one comes along, is, is visible to the ones who are in the deepest place of need. This is part of the counterintuitiveness of the kingdom of God. This is how it is that people can be blessed when they mourn. Because if you mourn, you will be comforted. If there's no space for, mourn, for mourning, there's no space for comfort. If there's no space for weeping and grieving going into the dark night of the soul, there's not space for resurrection. The grieving, the sorrowing, all uh, the sorrow, all of that is important. All of that matters. But when Jesus appears to her, 
And, and, and this is just kind of, and this is frying all my circuits in this moment. She doesn't recognize Jesus at first because she presumes that he's the gardener. The form in which Jesus comes is so familiar, is so common, is so ordinary that she doesn't, she doesn't perceive what's really going on. She doesn't recognize him. And one of the things that's hitting me in particular this Easter season that I've never quite put together quite like this, even though I, I love these stories separately, I've never thought about them together. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you know that story, they're walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from the holy city, walk, the place that was once a, a holy space is now desecrated because Jesus has been killed there. They're walking away in complete despair. And as they're walking, Jesus is walking alongside them, and they don't recognize him. They don't know it. Mary sees Jesus here, and she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Here's the thing. Through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, something already has fundamentally changed about the whole creation. That's the Christian story. It's the reason, I'm going somewhere with this, y'all hang with me. The reason that when Jesus dies, that there's all these apocalyptic signs, and the Gospels record things like that there's earthquake and lightning and thunder and all of that. The reason there's all these apocalyptic signs is because the idea is that a whole new time really has dawned in the resurrection of Christ. The creation itself, the cosmos itself has been changed through the resurrection of Jesus. Everything has changed through the death and resurrection of this one man. For Christians, the resurrection is a historical reality. Like that, That's already happened. That, it, God has already done it. Jesus has already been risen from the dead. What I'm trying to tell you is this. I think a lot of us are still praying and hoping for resurrection. We're still praying for a resurrection that's already happened. What we need, I think for many of us, is not another resurrection, but a recognition of the ways in which Jesus is risen already. Do you hear what I'm saying at all? Not another miracle, except the miracle of having our own eyes opened. Because I'm convinced what happens over and over again in our lives, I know it happens in mine, is that I have very certain concrete expectations about what resurrection is supposed to look like. I have ideas. If I grieve something, if I bury something, I have all these ideas about how the new life is supposed to look. I have ideas of what it's supposed to look like for God to come to my rescue. I think I know the miracle that I need. And then we have these moments, like Mary has here, when what she realizes is that the resurrected one was already staring her in the face. He was already in her presence. She was already in his presence. They were already beholding each other. The resurrection was already staring her in the face. God had already done the work. The miracle that she needed was one of recognition where her eyes could be opened to see the ways in which Christ was resurrected already. I'm not sure if y'all are as excited about this as I am. I don't know if this is heavy. I'm not sure. I'll just, but I just want, I want to throw this out. I'm throwing this out, and I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will sovereignly give somebody that kind of touch to, re, to, re, to really get this in here. I'm just wondering who in here right now 
is in a space where there's been death and loss and grieving and mourning, and it feels like it's all over, and there's this way in which you're waiting for God to show up and make a way, is it possible that the way is already in front of you? It's just in a form you weren't looking for? Is it possible that redemption's already here? It just didn't turn out to be six foot tall, white, blue-eyed Jesus from the pictures. And since he didn't look like the Sunday school pictures, you just assumed, well, that's not Jesus. I know what Jesus, oh, he has long, sandy blonde hair. Maybe there's provision, but it's not the kind of provision you were looking for. It's not quite the provision you hoped for, so you don't recognize it as provision. Maybe there's a way out or a way through that's already there, but it's not the path you would choose for yourself. It means coming to see some things that you wouldn't really want to see. Because the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of things about resurrection that just freak us out. The natural ending of Mark's gospel ends with the disciples simply terrified after the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes in that process of death and resurrection, we come to see things that we don't want to see, to know things we don't want to know. Our, everything about our experience of God shifts and changes. And there is something about that. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now, but it feels right. That, that like is fundamentally scary because now this resurrected Jesus is real and he's alive and he's on the move and he won't be confined. And there's a wildness to that God. There's a wildness to how that God works. And the life that we lived before resurrection was fairly ordered and self-contained. There are real reasons sometimes to not want to see the new thing that God is doing. There are real reasons. We want to bury our heads in the sand. There are real reasons that we're, sometimes we're not ready to step into that. I don't know who that's for or what it looks like, but I just feel that so strongly. That for a number of us, there are ways that we've been waiting for answers, begging for them, as if we're beggars. God, who calls us sons and daughters... Begging for an appearance, begging for God to do something that maybe God has already done or is already doing. And what needs to happen is just, I feel like it's, this sounds more mundane than I want it to be. Oh, it's just a shift in perspective. I'm not talking about going from pessimism to optimism. I'm not talking about looking on the sunny side of life. A lot of what I hear like that in charismatic circles, of which I am a part, does it sound to me like faith? It sounds like denial. When you bury your head in the sands and you pretend that things are not happening, that's not faith, that's denial. I'm not talking about denial. I'm not talking about looking at the glass as half full rather than half empty. I'm talking about actually seeing something of the resurrected God at work in your life, but in a way that you weren't anticipating. In a way that feels scary. Because even death, as awful as that is, when familiar things die, how do, I don't even know how to say this. There's still something about that that, though it's that, that that we understand. Resurrection is always pulling us into a life where we don't understand. It's going to be about trust. It's going to be a whole different way of being in the world. I, I am, I, I, I'm, I already, I'm taking way too much time. Here's the only thing I want to say about this text. Oh, we're okay? Good, thank you. It is Easter. Jesus is risen from the dead, y'all. We can eat gumbo later, Jesus, all right? He got up out of the tomb. Can't you just honor Jesus a little longer on his resurrection? That's terrible. Sorry. But here's the other thing about this that's so provocative 
to me and profound to me. So when Mary recognizes that it's Jesus, and they have this deep rapport, this deep love, this deep fellowship with each other, so interesting to me that Jesus says something that on the surface almost seems cruel. She recognizes him. She's elated. She feels the thrill of resurrection for just a moment. And what does Jesus say? Don't hold on to me now, Mary. Don't hold on. I've not yet ascended to the Father. You ever thought about that before? What is, what, what is happening here? There's something. Resurrection has so changed even the body of Jesus. Now leading up to his ascension. He's so different now. Here, here's what I see happening here. Mary had known Jesus one way before. Mary had known Jesus in one context on the front side of dying. She had one kind of experience of God. Now, through resurrection, there's this transformation. Jesus' very body is being transformed. And I think what's happening here is this way of Jesus saying to Mary, Mary, you won't get to know me now the way you knew me before. You can only know me in the way I'm presenting myself to you right now. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? The only God you can know is the God that's here right now. Can't hang on to the past. See, the trouble is, I think often we think we're clinging on to God when we're actually clinging to old ideas about God. We're actually clinging on to an image a God who has always been dynamic and active and alive, we turn into a statue. There's a reason why God was always so firmly against idolatry. There's a reason even to this day. You know how we minimize the impact of any saints, even of our time? We make statues of them. If you make a statue out of Martin Luther King and you can say, well, we have a holiday then you don't have to contend with anything he ever said about poverty. You don't have to contend with anything he ever said about war because we revere the man as a saint. And we revere people in a way that somehow allows us to escape their message. Well, I honor that person. Now I don't have to contend with anything they actually told me to do. You know what I'm saying? We do this all the time. When someone's life challenges us in some way, the easiest way that we can minimize their impact sometimes is kind of make a little bit of a statue where they become a graven image and say, like, I hope you don't hear me saying don't honor those things. I, I, have, a, I have a giant picture of Martin Luther King in my house. I have stuff from the civil rights. That's not, you hear the point, though, right? The point is, it's a way, we have this way of, like, memorializing. And what I'm trying to tell you is I feel like we do that even with God. Well, well, here's what God did for me way back then, and here's how God showed up, and we talk about the good old days, and in a way, that's all right. But, you know, there's, um, goodness, I'm so, thank you for that, for preaching with me. Um, <laughs> clearly, I'm taking my time. Can I just show you one other text real fast? Is that all right? I'm taking advantage of our Lord's resurrection right now, just because it's Easter. <laughs> Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah, um, Isaiah 43, I haven't thought about this in a while, but I'll never forget when I saw this for the first time how much it blew my mind. You've got this text where around verse 16, God is doing, the, the, the prophet God's using, starts doing kind of an extraordinary thing. 
he starts reminding Israel of all the ways that God had redeemed Israel before in a way that was encouraging. They always love those opening notes. The way I love the opening chimes on Edge's guitar for where the streets have no name. I know where that riff is going to take me. They hear those opening chords and like, oh, we know where this is going. Because verse 16 says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. What's it do? The prophet is reminding them of the Exodus story. That's what happens whenever God's people would gather. He would remind them. They would remind each other of the Exodus. Yes, those are the good old days. God raised us up out of Egypt. He delivered us. Isn't that awesome? Yay, God. It's the familiar riff that they've always heard. And then in verse 18, Isaiah says something contradictory. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Do you hear what the prophet says to do here? He tells God's people simultaneously to remember, he calls them to remember what God did in delivering them up out of Egypt, and then tells them, forget about that, because God's about to do something new. Now, here's what I think is going on in that passage. I think what's happening is that God is reminding his people that God is a deliverer. Remember that I am the one who delivers. When you look at your track record, when you look at your past, you can remember that I delivered you before. Now, forget all about how I did it before. Forget all about the kind of miracle you needed then. Because the miracle you needed before, you don't need now. When you're walking through the Red Sea, you need God to part the waters. When you're in the desert, you don't need God to part the waters. You need water. (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? But so long as we nostalgically, sentimentally look back to the past, the good old days of what God did before, and make God into an idol we can control because that's a story that we control, then we keep the real, live, active, I like how I'm preaching right now, risen Jesus (laughs) who's staring us down, calling us into resurrected life. We can keep him at bay then. Oh, that's not what you're supposed to look like. I remember hearing the Sermon on the Mount. I was there when you did this. I was, that's awesome. But Mary, I'm not revealing myself to you now in the same form that I did before. Don't cling to me. Don't hold me now. Don't hold on to me. That's a, that feels like a weird thing to me to say right now because, hey, if you're going to cling on to anything, well, surely you can cling on to Jesus. When all else fails, when everybody else fails you, when your best friend won't call you back, Jesus, the one thing you can cling on to, the one person you can cling on to is Jesus. Unless he tells you don't cling on to me. (laughs) Doesn't that just sound like the Lord? It's always good and right to cling to Jesus unless he says don't hold on. Because I think the point there in this text is, once again, our tendency is to hold on to a form. Our our tendency is to hold on to to an idea or an ideal. Maybe you don't get to cling to Jesus in the way that you've known him before. Maybe now he wants to show you something new. 
Maybe he wants to reveal yourself. Maybe the miracle that you need in this moment is not what you needed 15, 20 years ago. Maybe it's time to start romanticizing the past, which, by the way, is always kind of crap to begin with. I love it when we in America talk about the good old, de- good old days for whom? Oh, well, back in the 1950s, nobody cussed on television, and we watched Donna Reed, and we oppressed half our population. Good old days for whom? That's nice they didn't cuss on television. You hear what I'm saying? We have a way of putting on rose-colored glasses when we look back at the good old days. And if we're real honest, we make the good old days out to be a little bit more awesome than they were before. (laughs) Truth is, the good old days weren't all that awesome. Actually, there was a lot of ambiguity back then. Actually, there was a lot of pain back then. Actually, there were a lot of things that were buried under the surface that are just now being revealed and brought in the light. So maybe... Maybe there's a time to stop romanticizing and memorializing the good old days and realizing the one who taught us the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good rule and reign of God always is coming to us from the future. God has a good future for us. I'm not telling you never remember the past, but you have to do it in a particular way. We, I'm, I, I promise I'm trying to stop preaching, but I am like, I am so not even in my skin right now. The reason we rehearse that story ever, the only reason, is to remember the fact that God is a deliverer. That's the whole lesson from what God's done for us in the past, is that God is a deliverer. You've got to forget about the form. You've got to forget about the methodology. You've got to forget about what it looked like. Because what God wants to do in this moment, oh my goodness, listen, I don't know how y'all feel about this. I mean, like, but I mean, everybody, the worship here is lively and good. I'm such a product of the Pentecostal movement, and I love it because I love the fact that a one-eyed preacher, son of a slave, starts preaching in a rundown shack in 1906. And 50 years before the Civil Rights Movement, blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians are worshiping together, and women are preaching, and it's a powerful, powerful movement. But like in my part of the world where we talk about that stuff, it's always, man, Azusa Street, if we just get back to... There's no going back to Azusa Street. We need to embrace the ways that God is breathing by the Spirit now. I think there'll be that same kind of radical equality to it. That's, that's good. But we need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. We need to stop always looking back wistfully over our shoulder when the resurrected Jesus is in front of us and summoning us into new life. Please stand with me or I will just not stop preaching. I am... I'm sweaty. I'm happy. (laughs) I want to pray over you in just a moment. I know I've said a lot of things, and yet there's another way in which um, I feel like I've kind of only said one thing, too. And hey, even when I started off sharing a little bit of my testimony, can I tell you that for a holiness Pentecostal, as I refer to myself, hillbilly Pentecostal boy, son of a preacher and all that, I can promise you that redemption, to me, my idea of resurrection, would not, in my head, would have never been what I experienced in New Orleans a few years ago. I wouldn't have looked for that. Let's, let's, go, off, let's go off to a holy place. Let's go off to a sacred place and a safe place. We're like, you know what I mean? No, no, but I'm seeing this over and over again. That, that's always how God does it. 
Resurrection just doesn't take the form that you were expecting. And I'm not berating anybody for that. It's, a, it's, a, there's a, it's an invitation to see the world in front of you now through a different perspective. To see what God's doing in the, midst, in, in the middle of the mess. Part of what's happening for me right now, I really am trying to be done. When I see a lot of things in just the world and culture that are kind of freaking me out, are there things that disturb me? Sure. And the, it's such a polarizing time. It's such a weird time in every way. But I truly believe even in that, that there are ancient things, there are divisions, there is racism, there is all kind of seedy stuff that we just buried, that right now it is in the light. And nothing gets ex- nothing can be healed until it's brought into the light. We're having to have conversations we don't want to have. We're having to force, look in the mirror and look at realities that we don't want to look at. God doesn't bring anything into the light in order to shame people. God brings things into the light in order to bring healing. So even in the middle of all that tension and turmoil and all the things that feel uncertain, my, the question I keep trying to raise in the midst of all that for my own soul, where is God even in the midst of these things? How is God by his spirit actually revealing things to us that need to be healed? Confronting things that need to be confronted. Let me pray for you and over you. God, I just, in the stillness of this moment, the worship here has been so good, and I, I do feel your presence, honestly. I, I, I believe that you are here. But my heart is heavy in this moment because I do know what it's like to wake up on Easter Sunday and to feel like nothing has changed. I do know what it's like to hear the words, he is risen, and yet to know that I have not yet (laughs) risen. (laughs) So God, I pray specifically for sons and daughters here who've been in a place of deadness and darkness, a place that's lonely, a place where they really are asking the question, where are you? What are you doing? What are you doing in my life? What am I doing in my life? God, I just pray this morning, oh God, that they could see that you're standing in front of them even now summoning them in to new life, summoning them to a different way of seeing. Touch our eyes, Lord. Heal our eyes that we might be able to to see what you're doing, to be able to see the ways in which your resurrection power is at work already in ways we did not quite understand before. If you feel comfortable with this, and if you don't, don't do it, because I'm really, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody or it's not going to be some big production, but like if you, I would encourage you to feel comfortable with this. Whatever it is, that you feel like you've been clinging on to, if it's a job that you're clinging on to, if it's a person where the relationship's unstable right now, I'm not even saying that that relationship's not supposed to be. What I'm telling you is that nothing works when we're clinging. Whatever it is, whatever idea about who God is and what your life's supposed to look like and what the dream is supposed to be, whatever it is, whatever that thing is, I would invite you even just for a moment to just kind of clench your fist and just, just as a way of like, remembering that and bringing it into the presence of God. Lord, here is like, here, you see it, God. You see the things that we're holding on to. Here's the dream I had for my life. Here was my expectation. Here was my agenda. Here was this person that I thought was going to save me. Here, God, here, here was this, here are the things that I'm clinging on to. I'm going to ask you just, as, as you feel ready to do this, then just to release those clenched fists. I mean, just open your hands. God, we open our hands. We open our hearts. You teach us not to cling to anything 
Lord, the, the, everything that you have for us, you want to give as a gift. There's no, there's no grasping. There's no gripping. There's no, God, let, let our hands be open to receive the gift of the moment and who you are in this moment. Man, I feel like the Holy Spirit's working right now for some of you. Just, just breathe that in. Just receive that. Receive that freedom. It comes from just letting go. Receive that freedom of not needing a particular outcome, you know, and letting God be God. Letting the resurrected one be resurrected. And finally, Lord, I would even, last thing, if you would feel comfortable doing this, maybe even just to gently just, kind of just lay, your, lay your hand over your eyes. And God, I just pray that you would open our eyes. Touch these eyes, Lord. Grace these eyes, God, to be able to, be, to, be able to see the things that we could not see before. Where, we, where, where all we've been able to see is death. I pray that you open our eyes, Lord. Give us the grace to be able to behold the ways in which you're at work redeeming us already. You're already at work to restore all things. Your spirit is already hovering over us and bringing life out of the chaos. Just give us the grace to see it. And when that vision gets blurry in any way, like that one man in the New Testament, we'll not be too proud to come back and say that we need a second touch. We need our vision restored. Adjust our eyes to resurrection. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.